Thank you, guys. Okay. The book of Hebrews. A few years ago, I actually took on a study of the book of Job. And, uh, and I did that with a little bit of fear and trepidation, because if you've read the book of Job many times, you'll understand that it is a very repetitive kind of a book. Which means this, it means there was a real struggle pretty much every week to come up with some new thing uh, that, uh, that I had not covered uh, before that, and, and, uh, for, and I actually decided at one point to just leave it where it was. Because I got to the point, I felt like I was preaching the same thing repetitively over and over again. Sometimes I regret doing that. But the book of Job, and just like the book of Hebrews, at least in the particular chapter we're in now, uh, should remind us of some things. Uh, and one of those is that we need repetition. We desperately, in fact, need repetition. We need to hear the same things over and over and over again. It's so easy to be forgetful of even the most precious things of God. One of the reasons we come here on Sunday morning is that reason is to be reminded of how central and how important the Word of God is for all of those who believe. And I want to warn you this morning as we begin that today's text basically is a repetition of what we studied last week. I think one of the things we might consider this morning is this, is how many times as a parent have you told your children to do this or not do that? <laughs> you know, over and over again. It's like sometimes you sing like, feel like you're singing the same song perpetually. Like things never seem to sink in. So I just want to challenge you with the idea this morning that repetition is not something that's bad. It's not something that we should avoid. It's something that we actually desperately need. It's part of the big picture for all of us. The Word of God, in a sense, is repetitious. It's repetition over and over again from beginning to end. But what the author of Hebrews continues to do, and again, we don't know for certain who that is, is to argue that the new covenant in Christ is far better than the old covenant was through Abraham and Moses. Not just a little better, but a whole bunch better. Way better. Far better than we can even conceive of what better means. Chapter 7 and chapter 8. Chapter 8 is almost a repetition of chapter 7. Okay? So my struggle through the whole week is how can I preach faithfully that chapter without basically repeating most of the things I said last week? 
But repetition in Scripture emphasizes a number of things. One of those is importance. Things that are mentioned more and more and more probably have some higher degree of importance. They're things that we are supposed to take special notice of. And what is being spoken about in the book of Hebrews at this point is the priesthood. The royal priesthood. Began with Aaron, Moses' brother, through the Levitical line. That's the priestly line of descent in the Old Testament. Not all uh, Levites were priests, but all priests were Levites. No exceptions. Every single one of them. But what the author of Hebrews has been been arguing for the last few chapters is this, is that the Levitical priesthood was insufficient to achieve what was absolutely essential for salvation. And he understands this. Again, we don't know for certain who wrote this book. They understand some things very clearly. And that is one of the things that Jewish people were going to be confronted with was this. It's okay, now we have this Jesus who is a descendant of Judah. How could he possibly be a priest? Because he's not in the line of Levi. But what he argues is that he is a priest of a much higher order of priests. That of Melchizedek. Someone who even the great Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, recognized as being far superior to himself. And because that is true, also far superior to his descendant Levi, through whom the priesthood would come. Jesus is our perpetual priest. He intercedes for you and me in the heavenly throne room unceasingly. We not only have a higher priest, we have an unbelievably, unimaginably higher priest the perfect priest, the absolute priest. And as he is there in the heavenly throne room, as we are speaking, he is right now interceding on your behalf and my behalf. That should give us great comfort in knowing that. Just remember this, that the priest had to also offer sacrifices on their own behalf. In other words, they were sinners. They needed Jesus just as much as anybody else did.
Well, offerings are called offerings for a lot of reasons, but one of those is this, is that when you offer, make a real offering, it actually costs you something. In other words, you are giving something that is valuable to you. Not something you're going to throw out in the trash, but something that's important to you, something that in some degree is central to, your, to yourself. Just remember this, that even in the Old Dispensation, in the Old Testament, that even the very poorest were, were supposed to give offerings. They could not afford a cow or, or goat or sheep, then they were required to offer, at the very least, a pigeon or a dove. Offerings were required of everyone. And it always meant something that actually cost you something. Perhaps maybe you had to make a sacrifice in order, a real sacrifice in order to offer it. In other words, a sacrifice is not a sacrifice unless it actually costs you something. If it doesn't cost you anything, then... You might call it a lot of things, but it's not really a sacrifice. Sacrifices always are costly. So even the poorest among the people were required to use pigeons or doves. They weren't excluded. But the thing about it is, is well, you know the value of the, oh, well, we actually, we don't. We maybe, we think we know to some degree the value of the offering that was made on our behalf. And the value of Christ is exceedingly, unbelievably beyond our ability to even lay an inkling of understanding of it. He offered himself as an atoning sacrifice, not for his sins, but for our sins. The sins of everyone in every age who knows him and trusts him and relies upon him 100% for their salvation. Two thousand years ago, the old covenant was replaced with a new. Why? Because no one was actually saved by the old. The difference between the old and the new was they were looking forward to this real sacrifice to come. We look back on it. They look forward to the coming of the Lord. We look back on the coming of the Lord. There's a sense in which you could say that not one single person, not Moses, not Abraham, not any of those people was actually saved in the Old Testament days. Because they needed a Savior just as much as we. And Jesus coming and doing what he did in his earthly ministry here, he gained salvation even for Abraham and Moses and all those other people that lived thousands of years before him.
they acted and lived in hope of a Savior who was to come. We live and act in hope of the Savior who has come. That's the difference. Verse 6, he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. See, this is what the author of Hebrews has been arguing from the very beginning, that Jesus is better, Jesus is better, Jesus is better, Jesus is better, 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 better than everything. He is the only sacrifice that ever actually atoned for anyone's sin. All the other sacrifices that were made were just simply pictures of the real sacrifice in Christ to come. And remember, he himself was sinless. He had to be sinless. It was required of him to be sinless. in order to be a sacrifice for sinners. Unfortunately, there were many of the Hebrews and the Jews who bought into a religion that they thought was strictly legalism. Just going through the motions. Not one single person was actually saved in the Old Testament because the Savior had not yet come. So they practiced Levitical Judaism as the scriptures commanded them to. Sacrifices after sacrifices. How many animals do you think were sacrificed all through those generations? Over and over again. You you have pictures sometimes of blood just, just pouring forth almost from the temple. Especially on times, at times like at the Passover. And so many people came. Blood that was spilt, but blood that did not actually atone for a single sin. All foreshadowings of the true sacrifice to come in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was also the Son of Man. The difference between us and the Old Testament saints is they look forward to the Savior to come. We look back on the Savior who in fact has come. I just hope you take note of this as you're reading through the book of Hebrews. I mean, how many times you see the word more or higher, more excellent ministry, more this, better covenant, no, 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 it's always better, better, greater, greater. Everything. The more excellent ministry, this verse 6, more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of what? A better covenant which has been enacted in better promises. Better, 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 better. 
If, if, let me tell you something. Do yourself a favor. If anyone ever asks you what the book of Hebrews is about, you should be able to tell them this. It's about Jesus is better. Period. Better than anything, better than everything. You and I have a distinct advantage over the Old Testament states, uh, saints because they just saw pictures in a sense of things to come. We, on the other hand, sit on the other time of the coming. In other words, we have far more to go on than they did. We know the details about all kinds of things that, that have to do with salvation that were very, very mysteriously veiled from them. There's a sense in which we have a very great advantage over all the saints of times past. Not only because of Old Testament history, but because we have 2,000 years of church history. Of brothers and sisters who've gone on before us. Still we're waiting. We're waiting for Jesus to come again. People are always estimating or guessing or even sometimes with boldness telling people when Jesus is in fact coming. Truth is, none of us knows. None of us knows, but we all should be anticipating it. And be ready for it. Verses 7 and 8, he makes very clear that the faults and the failures of the old covenant made the new covenant absolutely necessary. The old covenant simply did not achieve what was required. The author quotes Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The Hebrew word for covenant is berit. The Greek is diatheke. Both very prominent words in the Testaments. The big difference is this, is the covenant that's really emphasized in the Old Covenant is basically the covenant of works. the other hand, the new covenant, the focus is on the covenant of, of what we call grace. The roots of which are deeply embedded in the Old Testament. 
Man, let me just say this, that both of those covenants are dependent and rely absolutely and 100% on another covenant. This is a covenant that we call the covenant of redemption sometimes. It's not a covenant that was made between God and man, but a covenant that was made between the three persons of the Trinity of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Redemption of sinners like us is their idea jointly. Not just one, but all three are actively involved and engaged in making it a reality. In some ways in different aspects, but all part of the picture. The Bible, the Old Testament, speaks to the, the God, the Father, as being the one who elects. The Son being the one who came to do what was necessary to save the elect. And the Holy Spirit is the one who has come forth now to take that covenant and to apply it directly to people like us. The covenant of works did not work, except in the case of Jesus. And hallelujah that it did, because he kept the covenant of works for Bucky. So Bucky doesn't have to worry about doing that anymore. Some people seem to think that grace is an entirely a new concept in the New Testament, that the grace really is not part of the Old Testament. And let me tell you, if you believe that, you don't know your Old Testament. It screams grace from one corner, from one page to the next, all the way through. Jesus depicted in Revelation chapter 21, verse 5, says this, Behold, I am making all things new. Not that I have made all things new, but I am making all things new. I will make a new covenant. This is through the prophet Jeremiah. I will make a new covenant, not like the covenant I made with their fathers. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They shall know me. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. I don't know about you, but sometimes thought of my own sin creeps in, and it's probably a good thing. <laughs> you ever have those times when you do something and you're going, there I go again. I thought I had a handle on that, and here I've done it all over again. My 
hope you have moments like that yourself. <laughs> I hope I'm not by myself. But let me say this, that you and I can have all confidence of the full forgiveness of our sins, past, future, or past, present, and future. Not because of what we have done or what we do, but because of what Christ has done and is continuing to do. Jesus at the Last Supper said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Paul wrote this in regard to the covenant. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are uh, sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us competent to be uh, ministers of a, guess what, a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Here he writes this. He says, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I wonder if I pass out sheets of black paper this morning. Blank paper, not black paper, blank paper uh, and ask you to write down the Ten Commandments if you could do it. Some of you could. I have every confidence of that. Some of you maybe think you could, but when it came time to do it, you'd be going, well, it's number six. <laughs> Is that in the other? Let, let me ask you something. When was the last time you even looked at the Ten Commandments? Read through them. The fact of the matter is Jesus is the only person who has ever kept the Ten Commandments. Moses didn't even do it, nor Abraham. Of course, Abraham didn't know for certain what they were. Jesus uh, made things easier for us so we don't have to remember ten whole commandments. He said this, he summarized the Ten Commandments in only two, love the Lord your God with all your heart and uh, mind and soul and strength and to do what? To love your neighbors yourself. If you know those, you know the Ten Commandments. Unbelievers do nothing that is not tainted with sin because even when they do outwardly good things, they do them for the wrong reasons. They do them for self-glorification. That other people will think highly of them. Maybe, and, and so they can think highly of themselves. What if the Ten Commandments had never been written? Wouldn't we know the things that please God as opposed to the things that don't? 
And Jesus made it easy for us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Simple logic, my friends, should lead us to the very same conclusion without having to be told that. And even now, unbelievers do nothing that is not at least tainted with sin because even when they do outwardly good things, they do them very often for self-centered reasons. Maybe because they think that the Lord will think very highly of me for doing this. Look, Daddy, what I'm doing. In other words, I want to challenge us with this idea this morning. That is, when we do the good things, do we do them for God's glory or we do them for our own glory? People often do good things to make themselves feel good. And that's not necessarily a wrong thing. But it's not the central thing. Verse 10, he says, just reminds them of the promise where God has said over and over again, 43 times as a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, I will be their God and they shall be my people. God has been setting apart a people unto himself ever since the Garden of Eden. He continues to do that today. And he will not stop until Jesus comes back another time. Some people are still today looking for special fulfillment of God. Uh, doing things in, in, in the nation of Israel and etc. I want you to understand something. The emphasis in the New Testament is not is Israel anymore. It is the church. Whether the per- church members be Jewish believers or, or Gentile believers, that doesn't matter anymore. But the church is the fulfillment of God's promises. All of those past promises in ages past. Verse 30, what higher, more exalted, and more compelling goal can there be than to know God verse 8 11 all shall know me when I was a brand new believer I read what's become known as a landmark book by J.I. Packer called Knowing God Some of you probably have read it. If you haven't, let me tell you, you need to. Because it will be an eye-opener for you.
Just a couple of quotes from that book. Our concern must be to enlarge our acquaintance, not simply with the doctrine of God's attributes, but with the living God whose attributes they are. What higher, more exalted, and more compelling goal can there be than to know God? What matters supremely, therefore, is not, in the last analysis, the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which uh, underlies it, the fact that he knows me. What I'm telling you this morning, what the author of Hebrews is telling us here is this, is our calling is a call to know God. Just remember this too, the original, the original audience, the one to whom this author is writing, they were Jewish people. Can you imagine <laughs> what it would be like to have been a Jewish person raised up in traditional Judaism through the Pharisees and this, that, and the other, and to start hearing stuff like this? Because it was all up to that point. It was all about you doing, you making yourself right, you doing the rules, keeping the rules perfectly, this, that, and the other. Do, 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 do. It was a religion of works, self-works. Christianity, by the way, is also a religion of works. It's just not our works. It's the works of Jesus on our behalf. You say, do, do you really understand the whole thrust of this book of Hebrews? How for some, it would have been this, this wide opening up of everything that you know, they had learned, this, that, and the other, all through their life had been rammed, crammed down their throat, and this, that, and the other, and, and, and to experience now the liberation, in a sense, of the requirement for them to absolutely keep that law perfectly, to make themselves right. And now to understand that they've had a Savior who has come, who has done that for them. How liberating, how how freeing that whole concept had to be to this first-generation church. The gospel does not enslave anyone. The gospel frees. We read the gospel depictions of the Sermon on the Mount and some of the other gatherings where thousands of people came to hear the words of Jesus. And, and very often they came from long distances and most of them probably walked to get there and, and that sort of thing. And, and very, how often did we read that they didn't bring food or anything like that, but, but they, they, they couldn't leave because they were just you know, engrossed with all of the teaching and the speaking of Christ. They didn't think about eating. 
Thousands of people gathered to hear these same precious words that we are hearing regularly on Sunday mornings and as we have our daily devotionals. The message of the gospel is indeed good news. Very good news. Almost unbelievable news. Almost. 